I think we should ask him hard questions about Node.js. <laughs> I was I was told on Twitter I could just ask you about Facebook and that ought to get you mad right off the bat. So <laughs> no, I'm in a cheery mood. The stock's down another four percent today. <laughs> <laughs> This podcast is sponsored by New Relic. To track and optimize your application's performance, go to rubyrogues.com slash newrelic. This episode is sponsored by railsthemes.com. Have a website only a mother could love? Then you need a theme. Go to railsthemes.com and sign up for early access, and when they release, you'll be able to check out and use their themes on your Rails app. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 56 of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel, we have James Edward Gray. I'm sorry. I'm one of the guys not named David on this podcast. <laughs> yeah. We also have Avdi Grimm. Hello from Pennsylvania. Josh Susser. Hey, morning from San Francisco. David Brady. Fully medicated and ready to rock. I'm Charles Maxwood from teachmetocode.com. And this week we have a special guest, and that is David Heinemeyer Hansen. Hey, everybody from uh, this afternoon in France. Ooh, France. Fran Where in France are you, David? Uh, we're down um, nearby Nice. Oh. Wow, I uh, didn't know we were supposed to call for in from exotic locations today. <laughs> so you well, I, close to the I always do that, so I'm covered. Yeah. <laughs> I don't always go on Ruby Rogues, but when I do, I do it from France. It's <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> very good. So, so, David, do you want to introduce yourself? Really quickly. Yeah, yeah, I was... Oh, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> I just, we just had to get that joke over with. Now we can move on. So, Dave, tell us about yourself. <laughs> well, I mean, um, since this is a Ruby podcast, um, uh, I think uh, questions exploring my opinions on things is probably more interesting than uh, me talking about what I did in fifth grade uh, uh, Denmark. So uh, let's jump to that. <laughs> okay. Uh, okay so, so, so share a little of your resume with us then. Um, from the fifth grade uh, uh, the Danish <laughs> class? Let me no, see. You can start with Ruby. Oh, okay. So yeah, I got going have you ever written Ruby. any software that anyone's ever used? <laughs> Um, we have heard of. It, it was funny actually because we were looking yesterday. Somebody brought up uh, Insticky, which was actually the first piece of open source software I ever um, released. And yeah, somebody still somebody's still using that. And and not only are they still using it, they're still developing on it. And I pretty much abandoned the project about a decade ago, and uh, it's still going strong now at version. 0.19.3 or something like that. Um, so it's just kind of fun to see that uh, software is forever in, in many cases, even if uh, you lose interest or, um, or there'll always be somebody or usually there's somebody who will, who will find it and do something with it. So It, it, it is forever, funny. but apparently it'll never reach version 1.0, I guess. I was going to say, it still hasn't shipped. Yeah. <clears throat> well, we, we can uh, start a betting pool about which will go 101st, that or rake. Ouch. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I actually had a long talk with Jim Wyrick about Rake 1.0 at uh, RailsConf, and, and he had some different ideas about that. So, kind of <laughs> well, I, well, I, th I think we're going right to 2.3. Right. There we go. <laughs> Or 197 or something like that. Uh, David, I actually uh, hacked on Insticky uh, way long ago. 
Oh, really? Yeah, I've I've, I've played with the code and everything. Awesome! It oh, was a uh, it was a fun project. Uh, a fair number of the ideas sort of came out in the open before uh, Rails was released, and uh, and actually for quite a while they were running on separate code bases. Even though obviously lots of Insticky had Rails inspired elements to it, it also ran off um, what was it called, Madeline, which was a uh, yeah that was object oh, yeah. assistance. Right. Uh, engine, um, which was kind of uh, sort of a, a fun way that uh, that people liked all the way up until their objects got corrupted and and then swore it off forever. So it didn't, never seemed like uh, that actually took off any further from uh, those original attempts at it. You know, do you ever go back and look at your old code and and say, "Wow, that was really cool," or "Wow, what was I thinking?" It's funny and, because the, the two main projects I, I'm working on, Basecamp and Rails, are full of code that was written ten years ago. I mean, not all the code in Rails have been rewritten, and certainly not all the code in Basecamp either. So there are tons of sort of elements. I do a git blame on a, a piece of code in in Basecamp, and I see. 2003 or whatever as the as the check-in year for for that line which is just a funny uh funny thing to see but i generally just have the principle that if i see code i don't like or no longer like i rewrite it so the only kind of code that's still around from 03 is code that i'm actually content with because if i wasn't i i would have been rewriting it already Mm -hmm. i can totally see that who wrote this piece of oh well, that was a long time ago. So, I mean, most of the code, if you take both of those code bases, have been rewritten, either because we wanted to do something different or because we learned something new. So those elements that are still around are around because they're, they were either good the first time around or they're just non-consequential. But it is funny to, to do a git compare on a piece of code sort of thinking this is kind of an odd construct and then see it was something you did five years ago and, uh, and there's nobody else to blame. Although it is, it, what's actually even more interesting is, is you do a good blame and you see somebody else touch these lines and you're like, who the hell came up with this concept? And then you dive down the git blame and see, oh, the guy actually just changed the comma. Like you're still to blame for the original right. setup or the design of this feature. Yeah, get blame is always a double-edged sword, especially when it points to you as the culprit, right? <laughs> For sure. Yep. So, so I wanted to ask you a little bit about uh, managing an open source project, since you obviously manage a very big and popular open source project. And what's it I think called? <laughs> what's it called? Yeah, Ruby on Rails, have you heard of that? Um, I think it's gone through kind of phases. Like, I mean, I feel like, you know, you were very heavily involved and doing most of the main coding toward the beginning and then you know uh during maybe the merger you know uh yehuda got a lot more involved and and maybe did a lot of uh development at least in some areas and nowadays you know aaron uh, does a lot of the the driving in some areas i just thought you'd tell us a little bit about what your role's been like and how it's changing over time sure so the fundamental of my involvement with Rails has been the same as it is from or has been from day one, which is I work on the stuff that I need. Uh, I create features and I fix bugs that personally affect um, the work that that uh, I'm working on, which is generally because it's involved in some sort of uh, thirty-seven signals product. Uh, and I find that that is the 
the best mode of contributing to open source software is when you work on your own problems because you tend to have a much better sense, much keener sense of what is quality. When you're trying to solve other people's problems, you're constantly working by proxy. You're constantly trying to find out what is it that they really want. And coming up with great APIs and, and great framework code off guesses like that is just not a great way at arriving at good software. Um, it has a tendency to become overly convoluted, uh, too many options, too many configurations, because you're trying to make things flexible for all the possible maybes that exist out in the world. And kind of code like that uh, just is And I think that that's why lots of professional tool vendors and programmers churn out poor quality code. Because once you get to the point where the only thing that you work on is the tool itself, you lose connection to uh, that barometer of quality, which is would I actually want to use this? Um, and not just in the theoretical of can I imagine that I would want to use this, but have I actually used it in the real world? Because it is ever so easy to come up with all these hypothetical situations and code examples and code demos that look and smell great when they're just this scaffolding idea of what you need for a, a readme file or, or a demo. And then as soon as you try to apply it to a real project, it all breaks down, which is really the guiding principle behind all of the Rails decisions that I try to make. Does this actually work for real code? Mm -hmm. And not only does it work for real code, is it better? So you look at a piece of code and, and you rewrite it in the new form or you introduce a new feature and then you compare the two. Preferably you compare the three or the four where you have a few sort of instances of where it's being used and then it'll be clear as day which is better and which is worse. And that's why I generally sort of, I'm not all that interested in just discussing code in the abstract level of sort of design patterns or um, just design language because it, it, it's so easy to get lost in just the words. Um, when you look at the code, there's no getting lost. Most reasonable people will agree when you compare two pieces of code, which is better and which is worse, which is actually... I have never found that to be the case. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm with Avdi on that one. I think the problem is we don't always work with reasonable people, maybe. I don't know. Well, so I, well what I was thinking is, is you're talking about like a, basically like a visual, sort of a visceral uh, com uh, comparison of two pieces of code, like which is the one that is clearly to you, um, you know, more elegant than, than, than the other. Uh, yes. Is that is that accurate to say? Yes, that is. And ninety percent of the value of evaluating techniques or approaches to to programming, as it relates to the kind of work that we do, comes from the uh, visual aspect of it because it reveals so, every other attribute that's worth discussing. So, I guess my question is, um, you know, that uh, I've I've seen a lot of code, you know, in my ex in my experience that looked great. Um, you know, it really, it seemed, um, maybe it seemed clever or maybe it seemed like it, it, it solved the, the problem in a very direct way. Um, but what wasn't obvious was, um, the effects that that piece of code then had on maintainability over time as, as people tried to extend it or tried to extend the things that it touched. And, um, and that's, 
so that's where I see like that method of, of comparing things falling down. I'm curious uh, how you, you know, deal with with the not so obvious consequences of, OK, this looks great in isolation, but what are the long term effects of having this, you know, touch other how it touches other code and, and stuff like that? Well, I think it's two parts. So first is the scope of the comparison. I completely agree. If you're just looking at five lines of code and, and somebody injects something that can write those five lines in one line of code, that might on its surface seem appealing, but it's completely uninteresting, which is why comparing code like this on the readme or example level is meaningless. The only right. type of comparisons that are worth doing are comparisons of, of, of code from real projects. Because real projects just have this uncanny way of exposing all these flaws and faults. And also why you look at not just one instance of something, but three or four. So if it's you're introducing a new technique to, to a code base, usually you do that because you've seen a pattern. It's not just because you've seen one area of the code where this would be slightly better if you introduced um, some change. You've seen this pattern multiple times in your code. And real code has this wonderful sort of tendency to be um, same, same, but different. Like uh, you're trying to abstract a pattern that you've spotted three, four, five times in your code base. But, and, and all of those spottings or sightings, they're similar, but they're not exactly the same. So I think that that's what really helps tease out, is this actually a good abstraction? Um, and that's why sort of naive extractions that I've seen, for example, if you just look at the scaffolding code that comes out of uh, Rails, for example, like just a controller. If your only objective was to write that controller that's being generated by default in the shortest uh, amount of lines with the least amount of duplication, you will come up with a framework that's completely different than Rails. It's just not optimized for making that one controller look good, which is why when I see stuff like resourceful and so forth. Um, I look at that and say, yeah, that would be great. If, if all we did all day long was writing scaffolding code, that would be a, a wonderful optimization. I never write scaffolding code. Like Scaffolding code is the, the starting point. What's interesting is the kind of optimizations that are still relevant after the application does something useful. And scaffolding applications generally do not do something useful. Um, the second part of that is then like, so let's imagine that, uh, that you've, you've looked at these four or five, six instances of, a, of an optimization from a real application and you come up with a change or an improvement that, that helps those five areas, right? Now the question is, is this long-term maintainable? Like that question to me is irrelevant. I think this is fortune teller territory. If you concern yourself with things that you cannot see and cannot touch today, you cannot evaluate them. And that's, to me, the same as big upfront design. It's trying to guess what the future is going to look like and how the tools we design and shape today might best fit the future. It's a completely futile exercise in my book. Not actually it's worse than futile. I think it's harmful. I think it's the same sort of uh, tendency that leads to um, what do you call that? Guess code. Like, oh, let me just add this one feature or this one option to this piece of code because I might need it tomorrow. That's the worst kind of programming to me. Like, that's the kind of stuff that makes your code base 
overly configurable in ways that actually ends up making it rigid and hard to adapt and change. Because once tomorrow actually rolls around and once the requirements of tomorrow are actually here, they're never what you guessed them to be. And they will always require different changes. Yeah, and the agile word for that is Yagni. Right. Yep, absolutely. I think Yagni applies just as well to, to all concerns of, oh, is this going to be maintainable in the future? I just don't think that it's a, it's not a relevant concern. If, if the maintainability of a feature should be completely obvious uh, at the point of implementation. And if you're worried that you, you haven't seen enough then maybe you're just working off one instance, which is completely fair concern. Like if you only have one area of the code base you're trying to improve, it's a fair concern thinking, eh, is that actually going to apply equally well elsewhere? Which is why I try never to abstract any pieces of, of code or functionality until I've seen the problem at least three times. That, so, yeah, that, they, that's interesting. The um you know who Ralph Johnson is? He's one of the Gang of Four Design Patterns book. He did a lot of small talk stuff ages ago. He's he's, he's pretty awesome. And I saw him do a talk at Uppsala way back when. Um, and he was talking about frameworks and reusable frameworks. And he, he made a very simple point that uh, we don't ship code until we've tested it. And frameworks are meant to be reused. So, you know, you can't really ship a framework until you've not only used it, but you've reused it. And exactly. Yeah, so that, that, that's a very short way to say what you, you know, went into a lot of detail about, which uh, you know, was really interesting to hear that, that uh, perspective spelled out in so much detail. And the, uh, the only reason I know this is because I've tried the other way. I tried mm-hmm. multiple times and multiple iterations of features in, in Rails have come about because you get so giddy about an idea. And you get so giddy about the idea that you want to implement this improvement before you've abstracted it or extracted it, before you have actual work in code that you can do it before or after on and see, did it get better or did it get worse? And every single time I've gotten ahead of myself and tried to do this sort of preemptively guessing the future, it's turned out to be like the code was just bad. As soon as I had to use it, it was like, oh, 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 all these areas of concerns that I had considered, but I came to the wrong conclusions because I had nothing to actually look at. So I was just estimating and guesstimating and doing all sorts of things that'll lead to crappy code. I I remember uh, for a long time, the policy in Rails for, you know, when people would say, oh, hey, I want to do this, this new thing in Rails. It, it, you know, aside from the PDI response, uh, which uh, I eventually grew to love. uh, The PDI response? Uh, please do investigate, uh-huh. which it was interesting. A lot of people took that as uh, sort of a, uh, you know, the Rails core giving them the finger. But it was actually like, no, this is a good idea. Go do the work and we'll take a look and see what it looks like. So I, I thought that that was a great way to handle all those all those feature requests. But the- as, a, as a side note in that, PDI yeah. is actually, to me, the the most sort of endearing thing you can say about a suggestion somebody has like right. they had the mm-hmm. they had the problem they had the insight they have the knowledge to fix it how the hell am i somebody not with your problem somebody not with your insight going to do a better job at fixing your problem than you are i mean i to me it PDI was often, as you said, sort of positioned, oh, this is an arrogant response like i don't want to deal with mm-hmm. your problems to me it's the complete opposite of arrogance like it is saying, I don't know. Like you have the information, you have the knowledge. 
um, you're the one in the position to do the work. Yeah. And it took me a, a few times to figure out that that's where you were coming from. And then I was like, cool with it. But, the, but the, uh, the policy in, in Rails core for a long time for feature requests and things like that was let's try it out in a plugin. Yes. It, which was a, I think a really nice way to, to force that process that you just described. And, and we've gotten even more militant about it recently. Um, pretty much everything that is of any consequence will start out in a plugin these days. For example, strong parameters, which is the sort of new approach to dealing with um, uh, mass injection issues. It's a plugin. Mm-hmm. It's even a plugin where I making that plugin, I was 98% sure that this was absolutely the way to go. Um, but these days, the sort of the plugin structure that we have and the way we set these things up makes it such that there's no real penalty for starting out any kind of new feature in the framework as a plugin. And not only is there no penalty, there are a laundry list of benefits, including you can use the feature right now, which is, for example, true of strong parameters. That's going to be a, a feature in Rails 4, but you can use it now in Rails 3 and whatever else uh, people have chosen to backport it to. So this leads me to another question then, and that is, um, if you're working on and adding the stuff that you need to Rails and somebody else, you know, investigates, builds a plugin, builds an engine, whatever, and, uh, you know, submits it, how do you decide which of these ideas, which of these implementations make it into the next version of Rails? Because they won't sure. necessarily solve your problem, but they they may solve 60 or 70 percent of the community's problems. Sure. Which is that that's when you go back to show me the evidence. And to me, show me the evidence is. Um, show me the before after of real code, which is, that's always the baseline. Like whenever anybody proposes something and it's not immediately obvious, even if it is immediately obvious, I want to see the before and after. Because as we just talked about, that is the only reliable way I have and know of to evaluate APIs um, that could go into the framework. And it sort of it, it becomes so so obvious, even if it's not my problem, which certainly does make it harder. But if it's somebody else's problem, if they can present me with three, four, five different code examples where like this is what the code looked like before, then I came up with this thing, and this is how it looks now, um, I can get pretty close to sort of discerning is this an improvement or is this a step backwards? And then I mean, all these things can make it in. That's why I mean, it, it's fairly rare that we have full-on competing implementations for the same problem. It has, it's happened. Um, yeah, nested uh, parameters or nested attributes. There were like two or three different proposals on that one. <laughs> okay, but yes. continue. <laughs> yeah. Yes, and, and, and sometimes that is how it works out. And, and uh, nested parameters is actually a good example. So most of the apps that I've ever done has never needed nested parameters. Like I don't Maybe it's just the domain I work in or the, the way we do our UI or any other reason you could pick. I, I've never had that be a real problem for myself. So I was loath to just make a snap decision before that had had a really long time to play out. And we've had other uh, things like that. Um, internationalization was probably the biggest one. Like for such a long time, we like said no. This is not going to make it in because all the proposals I'm looking at now, I don't like. So let's let's just keep churning. And the community churned for another 18 months or so. And all, I think like three of the major plugins got together and said, well, let's just at least create a base and just 
extract the lowest common denominator, and it turned out to be wonderful. And I've since used that feature, and I think like this was great. Like this was the process, and it really worked. It takes longer that way, absolutely. It doesn't resolve as quickly. Uh, when I'm working on features that I care about deeply myself, which is features that I would use myself, the decision process is just much faster. And that is simply, that's just how it is. Uh, the, the closer you are to having a, sort of an overarching responsibility for a framework and then being interested in certain aspects of that framework in, sort of in particular, yes, those will move faster. Like, I don't know of another way. The community seems uh, really interested in the moment uh, in you know object-oriented design principles. We're seeing things like DCI, isolated testing, uh, you know, uh, projects. I know you mentioned one earlier, uh, which I can't remember now, but uh, Objectify, you know, is a is a new project kind of along these lines. And I get the impression from reading uh, things you write in particular that. You're not really keen on this movement, and I think I understand now because uh, I've been listening to you, and I'm assuming it's because you feel like we're discussing these concepts in the abstract, whereas you would rather talk about the actual implementations and the benefits that it leads to. Am I understanding that right, or what do you think about the whole object-oriented fascination at the moment? So I think there's a disconnect in this whole discussion, which is the disconnect between the lofty design patterns and design ideals, which are very easy to talk about in a convincing matter. You can convince a lot of people that say the law of Demeter is a great design principle and your code will be so much more maintainable and it will be so much more wonderful if you follow it. And as long as you explain it in a very abstract way with small code example like snippets, it's incredibly convincing. Um, and that goes for pretty much anything. No matter how shit the idea is, you can convince people as long as you stay on the abstract plan or with, with small enough pieces of code. Now, as soon as you then try to move beyond that and actually apply those principles or those ideas to a larger code base, here comes the truth, as we just talked about. You will see the code, and you will see whether it's better or whether it's worse. And I think that the, the, the case for a lot of these, which I actually think are completely misnamed, uh, calling these more um, OO principles, sort of sets a false dichotomy up between like, oh, this is OO, and, and what we're doing is not OO, which I think is complete bullshit. There's this cherry-picking of a few principles like single responsibility principle and, and, and so forth that are being heralded as being a, these are the be all end all of, of what is OO, which I think is such bullshit. Uh, and then they're being applied to what I think are just bad ideas. And I don't say that lightly I, I, because, I mean, I seriously try to live up to, uh, to the principles I talked about in, in my RailsConf keynote, which were keep an open mind. There are great ideas being hatched all the time. And Jason uh, Fried, my, my partner at 37 Signals, uh, wrote up a thing called uh, Give It Five Minutes, which is that in programming, as in anything, it's very easy to have a knee-jerk reaction. I think a lot of people had lots of knee-jerk reactions to stuff in, in Rails 3. So I'm trying to be aware of that for myself. And I'm trying to give things much more than just five minutes, more like... 
uh, five days or five weeks or five months, and in, in some cases, <coughs> RSpec, maybe even five years. And what I just found with, with sort of the, the principles we're talking about here, objectifying in particular, is that when the rubber hits the road and you look at the actual code and you compare it the before and the after, it is more complex with no discernible value. Maybe there's discernible value if you start, again, moving things out to that fortune teller um, line of thinking. Oh, this will be more maintainable. Maintainable to me is such a, a weasel word. It's, it's a way to sort of avoid talking about the here and the now, the concrete, the things we can see and we can touch and we can actually compare and then move it out into the abstract, the vague, the things we can't compare, the sort of the, the hand-wavy end of design discussions, which I find generally to be an uninteresting domain, which is also well, why I, I generally don't care about these discussions until people put forth code, because as soon as the code is there, we're back to the concrete, we're back to just saying, is this better or is it worse? And if you take Objectify, I, I really struggle to, to imagine people seeing the before and the after code and thinking, oh yeah, this was better. This is simpler. This is uh, this is nicer. Like this is um, uh, sort of a, a reasonable amount of abstraction. This this is doesn't unnecessarily introduce new abstract concepts and names that end up like not really doing anything for the for the underlying code. No, I think if you look at that code and you look at the before and the after, you'll see what the hell are we doing with these additional four patterns and policy my this and policy my that. Uh, and it doesn't improve anything. Nothing gets better. Um, well, that's it, what, well, to it, me, it, I, I really just, I mean, borderline get upset about, which is a personal yeah, yes. fault of mine. Yeah, yeah. So, so David, I, I think you, you have a good point there. But, but as many things, it's a, it's a matter of perspective. And you know, you have a, you have a really strong. Uh, understanding of rails from soup to nuts and top to bottom, and you understand how the all the pieces work together. And many people coming to rails, uh, you know, they've just, it's just like they've stopped into the they've stepped into the foyer or the entryway of a building, and that's pretty much all they get to see. And they think, oh, you know, if I rearrange the furniture in here and you know change where the doors are, things will work much better. But they don't really know the whole building yet and how to make things work, or that they're wasting time in just the you know the smallest, most superficial part of the problem. Yeah, and I want to. I, I want to. I add think that's true. That. Uh, well, let me just add. I think that's mm -hmm. a. I think that's true, but I don't even think that's the main problem because I love the idea of the newbie coming in and not being bound by knowing everything about how Rails works. I think that the veterans of of anything are often blind to the most obvious improvements that you can make um, because they've just they've dulled their senses to the obvious deficiencies that there are, there are there because they just don't notice them anymore. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that's that can not, happen. I, I think that that absolutely can happen. But so you can look at it at a reasonable small scale. Like if you come in and you've just seen the foyer, you don't know how the rest of the house works. You can still make sort of rearrangements to the furniture that are a net positive without understanding the rest of it. But you still have to be evaluated on like, oh, does the couch work better over there or not? And I think that that's really, that's why I love programming. That's why I think programming is so much uh, better of a discipline than so many other disciplines that have a very hard time uh, making their abstract ideas into something concrete. Like we can go from really abstract 
philosophical thinking about certain problems. And then at the end of the day, it still has to be executable code. And I think that that sort of transformation is the, is the beauty of it, um, which allows us to cut out most of the bullshit. Because as we just talked about, once, once the code is written, you can just evaluate there, that there and you'll, you'll see instantly whether the emperor has no claws, which I think is the case for a lot of this so-called OO um, approaches to let's rearrange the furniture. So what do you think OO is? When you say it's so-called tying, OO. It's, it's tying uh, data and um, functionality together. Like, to me, that's sort of the baseline of it. There are sort of all sorts of the aspects of that we can talk about, um, but uh, I think that that, to me, is, is the underlying uh, principle, that, that uh, the, the state and the behavior lives together. Do so you you're not, you don't, you don't look at it from a, from a, like the behavioral perspective of, of um, it's about modeling behavior. Well, so is the functional approach. Like, just well, no, I mean, like the like when I when I say that, I mean like you know the as as you know, say Alan Kay, you know, defined object oriented programming as you know as a system for basically getting rid of data almost entirely and and modeling behavior between things that are almost like you know independent cells. Again, that in the abstract sounds fine, and then somebody will introduce. Um, single responsibility principle and they will do a literal reading of that pattern and then they will apply it. It's not a pattern. I mean, it's a principle. It's, it's, I mean, I think it sounds like you're kind of conflating like uh, the, the application, how you want to do it. So do you want things in larger pieces or you want them in smaller pieces? Um, and I think that this is the, the kind of sort of intellectual exercising that quickly becomes boring to me. Because it so right, quickly becomes well, divorced from the concrete nature of what we're trying to do. So let me let me let me maybe try to bring in a different perspective on that because um, I you know I I guess I've found myself in the position of talking about a lot of this stuff, but I don't talk about it be- just because. I mean, I I will admit I enjoy talking about it. I I enjoy thinking about abstracts. Um, I you know I enjoy looking at things that I've seen, I've seen over and over again in many code bases and sort of trying to understand like the abstract principle of what, what's going on there, um, which is kind of what you were co- talking about earlier. Um, but I mean, the reason that I talk about it a lot is because I find myself in the position of seeing the, seeing sort of anti-patterns come up in code bases over and over again. Um, and so I think it's, it seems a little dismissive to say, well, people are just talking about this stuff because they enjoy talking about it when most of the people that, that I'm talking about this stuff with, it's because they are in a panic virtually because their projects are coming to, you know, which used to be moving fast are now, you know, they're taking forever to get new features out because of, you know, very often because for instance, um, bits of code have many different responsibilities and, uh, and so it's impossible to get something new in without, um, without breaking a bunch of old things. So, I mean, is it, is it fair to say that, that that's just sort of, you know, abstract intellectual noodling? I think it very quickly devolves into that unless you stay at the code level. So unless you keep it revolving around those specific pieces of code that you saw and the sort of application of 
some principle or some pattern and how that improves it, then yes, it, it so quickly becomes the noodling of sort of philosophers wanking. And that's, that's the sort of the dilemma, like, uh, as we just talked about, uh, sort of the very appealing part of programming is that it, it contains both sides, right? So we have the sort of the abstract ideas of why we do things the way we do. And then we have the product that comes out of that, which is the code. And I just find myself getting bored with a lot of discussions that, that tend to, to move very quickly from this, oh, here's this piece of code, which is usually oversimplified um, and, and removed from the real, real world very quickly. And then we move into these abstract discussions about one principle or another without staying in close contact with the code. And that just is just not a very interesting sort of exercise yeah. to me. Yeah, which is which is unfortunate because I think the the original work done on design patterns, all the people involved in that were like up to their elbows in code all the time, and and they extracted that knowledge from their you know, concrete experiences. So I, I I think you're really right about that stuff needs to be grounded. And, and, and I think actually yeah. if if you look at the design patterns book, um, sort of the Gang of Four book, I think it's one of the most unreadable books ever written. Um, and I think it's just a terrible piece of uh, sort of attempt at teaching, uh, versus if you look at, at sort of other much more grounded, much more concrete pattern level books, I think, uh, Fowler's both the refactoring book and the, um, uh, patterns of enterprise application and architecture, which is sort of a, a very fancy name for describing something that was actually incredibly concrete, um, those are, to me, much better approaches at it, where it's sort of like, we're not interested in the patterns themselves and just talking about them on, on this abstract level. We're interested in, like, what happens when you apply this pattern or principle to a piece of code, and this is how it looked before, and this is how it looks now. Well, well, yeah, well, yeah, but, you know, the first time you try something, you know, you get some of it wrong. So, they, you know, they're the first design patterns book. They, sure. they didn't know obviously, how to do it. So, yeah. Obviously, uh, sort of lots of uh, credence and, and kudos for, for coming up with the whole idea of describing these things and so on. I just, if, if you look at the practicality of it, this is being held up as, oh, yeah, this was the original design patterns book. And, and I think it, it's entirely at that level that just does not interest me. And maybe some of it is because they were trying to solve how to create text editors for desktop platforms in C++. And a lot of these patterns and principles are very context-specific. And they just seem like wanking if, if you inject another language and another domain into it. And a lot of these problems just disappear because they're just not problems in that domain anymore. So that's, yeah. that's some of it. But I also think a large part of it is just how sort of they got carried away in a little bit in the um, the abstractness of it, which, I mean, that is this occupational hazard. Like we are dealing with sort of abstract things, even when they are at the code level. So I, I'm completely sympathetic to how you can get lost in that. Like I've certainly committed that sin many times, and that's why I'm so passionate about it because I, I know that every single time I get down that trajectory and I divorce myself from looking at the actual before and after code, I just, I get lost in things that don't end up mattering. So I, I want to inject one thing here and then I promise we can move on to something else. But um, I, I too am a big object geek and I, I like uh, studying the object stuff and I, I do read a lot of the abstracts and the new ideas, you know, DCI and all that. Um, 
And I like a lot of what you said about how, you know, you have to keep it on. We would do this because this becomes this and that's obviously better. I, I definitely agree with that and can agree with that more. And I love your idea about, you know, we should give it five minutes or, you know, up to and maybe quite a bit more and see if we still think the same then. I, I agree with all that. But I think for me, the reason that these kind of discussions hold value is that um, until I, until we talk about it in the abstract and compare it and get ideas, then I may not have the ideas about how to get from the before code to the after code. Right. It's that I look at something and I see, you know what, this could be better and I wish I could make it better. And then I think, OK, what if I applied a little DCI here or what if I uh, reduce this to this pattern? And then, you know, and then, like you say, absolutely, I believe we should, you know, look at that objectively and say, yep, that's better or, or you know, OK, no, that's the wrong way to go here. It's not the it's not the thing we should be trying. But. But until I have that foundation of knowledge, then I'm, I don't, you know, I may or may not have enough good ideas to actually get it to something better. So that's why I believe those kind of things hold some value. Sure. I, the main issue I have with that is it's kind of like uh, academic knowledge of all kinds. Once you name something, it gives it often too much credence as being a good idea. Like, if, let's take the example of law of Demeter, right? Like just in the name, it says law. Like, it, to me, that just gives that concept idea way too much weight. And what I find is that when people learn about things that have names like law of Demeter, like they think they have to fucking follow those laws or else bad things will happen, right? Like the critical part of evaluating the before after code is so easily switched off when you have these fancy sounding uh, patterns and principles, especially if they are sort of uh, have enough hubris to include the name law as part of it, um, that people will just slavishly follow them to to bad ends, um, producing code code where the after is worse than the before. So, I mean, I mean, I mean that, that's not a. It's very easy to take that whole idea and, and just classify that under anti-intellectualism, which. I don't think that's what it's about at all. I think it's about having more than a healthy amount of skepticism uh, towards the sort of myriad of ideas of how to design software that are out in the world and sort of having a little bit more of a, uh, a healthy balance between uh, delving into the abstract, the patterns, the sort of uh, all the stuff that is divorced from the lines of code that we eventually have to boil all this stuff down to. Anyway. I, I just wanted to say that I do agree with what you just said, that um, I play a lot of chess and in chess we study, you know, openings and sequences of moves that are, you know, almost like laws, you know, but and that will make you good when you get to where you know what those are. But to actually get to great, you have to know the point where you deviate from those lines to get into what you want to get into. So I, I totally agree with what you just said that, you know, you, you should take all these principles, you should learn how to apply them, you should figure out how they can change your code. But remember that, you know, it, it, each situation is a case by case basis. And there's time when you got to break the rules. Yeah. You know? 
And even more so, I mean, because that to me, it's almost like I want to flip that. There are times where you need to follow the rules. That's more like how I would flip it because it's not as this sort of catalog or this rule book that we have of, of patterns or sort of like that is the law and then occasionally you can be disobedient. Um, I don't think that's the case. I think that occasionally it's helpful to follow these principles. I think that's a, a more helpful way of, of, of going into it. And the other thing too is that so we were talking about like, oh, you don't necessarily, before you become an expert, you don't necessarily know um, like how to design software in a good way, right? Like if all you know is just laws, like, oh, it's law to me, or like I'm not supposed to call into this deep hierarchy because like that's what the law says. You've learned nothing and you will know nothing when you actually hit something that deviates in the slightest bit, which software does all the time from those prescriptions. So therein lies no deep knowledge. The deep knowledge only lies in when you actually understand why this is helpful in, in, certain, um, in certain cases, which is the problem I find generally with sort of design patterns and, and learning them before you've actually stopped your toes, before you've had the hurt of not knowing like how bad things can become without that principle, uh, it's very hard to internalize and understand why these things are actually helpful and when they're helpful um, and sort of grow and learn from, from that. Like my preferred path actually of learning is that first you have to do the wrong thing. You have to do the bad way to appreciate and understand the good way. And I think that that is, is doubly so the case with design patterns and doubly so the case with design laws and all these other principles that we're talking about, that you have to do it wrong first to appreciate why, uh, why doing it so-called right is helpful in these certain situations. So can we go ahead? Yeah. So, so the, I, I think that's very similar to what happens when people enter a new language or come to a new language. And, you know, we talked about this on an episode a while ago about, you know, seeing people write, uh, you know, Fortran programs in Ruby or Java programs in Ruby or what have you, where, where people are, are, you know, you have to do it wrong for a while, but people are basically, uh, you know, working at the limits of their own experience. And, you know, you have you have to work there for a while to be able to expand the limits, and the, but yeah, it's you know you can use tools wrong, and that's a good way to learn to use them right. That I I I think I mentioned it uh, on the podcast before, but one of my favorite sort of co uh, conceptual tools is Wittgenstein's ladder, which is the whole thing about you know oh, we have a ladder of concepts, but to be able to get to the top of the ladder, you have to move up the rungs and and go through the stages of learning. Yes, yes. And which is actually also, I think, at times, one of the most frustrating parts of uh, being involved with Rails, that uh, to me, you only really appreciate what Rails gives you before you've tried to do everything Rails does without it. Like, <laughs> yeah. it's, uh, it does so much, and it's so easy to lump all of those solutions in as um, bulk or weight or... What was the used to be the uh, what did we call it? Not mono monolithic, like as a as a monolithic yeah. structure, right? Like those things are so easy to those labels are so easy to apply before you've actually hit the problems that something is trying to solve, um, and and that's why at, at times it's just it's, it's 
it's frustrating, but you also have to know that that is how, how learning happens. Like people will start out, which is healthy. Like that's what leads to those newbie insights. They will start out thinking, oh, we don't need all this shit, right? Because I've not hit the problems yet. And then once they hit their problems, they will develop the appreciation for the solutions. As goes yeah, I think that's absolutely true. As goes with, with the side patterns, which is also why it's actually not helpful to try to speed these things up too much, as we just talked about, right? You can't just shove the most sophisticated framework on somebody and the most sophisticated design patterns on somebody and then oh voila we have uh, a great student of programming here we have a great craftsman of programming uh these things take time not necessarily in calendar time i believe somebody can become a fantastic programmer in say nine months which i know lots of people don't believe that most Companies hiring people don't believe that. Like they're always asking for years of experience. I created Rails after uh, working with Ruby for say three months, and I think that sort of it, it's all about like there's no speed limit in terms of how fast you can learn this stuff, but there is a path or a trajectory or a road you have to travel to learn it, which includes sort of stubbing your toes and, and making all these mistakes uh, along that path. You can go very fast doing that. You can make tons of mistakes very quickly and learn from them, but you have to go through that cycle to appreciate and truly understand the sort of the solutions and how to use them. Yeah. I get a lot of people saying like, um, so here's this code that I wrote, but, um, but how would you make it, you know, how should I make it better? And, and, um, and my first question is always, well, how is it hurting you? And, and uh, that's the, like, that's the first order I would say. Like if you can get somebody who's actually like, I'm experiencing hurt, that's the perfect spot to be in for learning. The, right. the second best is, of course, to demonstrate hurt. But you then right. have to have that shared understanding. Like you can point to a piece of their code and like, do you know that A, B, and C, and like, this is why like, this duplication is here, or this is kind of rigid or whatever. But they have to get to that insight before you can then, oh, Absolutely. here's what I propose. Absolutely. But you know, and I guess it's, it's just difficult. Like it's, it, you, can, it's, you can totally do that one-on-one, um, and it just gets difficult you know, once you start wanting to share, share knowledge, you know, in a larger sphere, um, you know, because you're going to say something, it might, might mean a ton to somebody who's hit the same pain points that you have. And then, you know, somebody else out there that's, that's newer is just going to sort of ape it blindly without realizing, you know, why they're doing it. Um, and I don't really know, I mean, maybe you have some insights. I don't really know how to, how to prevent that. I I don't think there is a a good prevention. Sometimes the prevention is just, it's going to take time. And then, yeah, if they're going to ape something, then they're going to stop their toes when they cargo called it uh, a solution in, in an area where it doesn't fit. And then they just hit the hurt later. And then, but the hurt they must hit. I mean, there's no, there's no way around that. Um, so part of it is just that it, it's, it's going to take time. And also it's going to take willingness. There are plenty of people who are entirely content getting to level three not knowing that there's level 55 available for, the, or actually even knowing that there's level five, 55 available. They're just like level three gets me what I want. I have an application that sort of kind of probably works. And to me, by the way, that's wonderful. Like I mm-hmm. think that democratization of programming is one of the sort of most beautiful things that we have that, that you can have people who know very little can make software. I mean, how magical is that? that they can solve their own problems knowing so little, which is why I still hold immense appreciation for things like PHP. 
um, that I think that they bring truly great things to the world um, by enlarging the pool of people who can have access to programming computers. Let me ask you one more question, which I think kind of ties into um, everything we've been talking about, but also is, is something people are interested in. When I asked on Twitter what I should talk to you about, about every third response was something to do with front-end development, and that definitely seems to be a big focus these days with things like Active Model, uh, Active Model Serializer and, of course, JBuilder. You know, and Rails has, I think, been kind of having that internal debate about how do we go with this. But at the same time, you know, you posted that uh, blog post about how you guys are doing Basecamp Next, the big Russian doll strategy, really focused on caching and stuff like that, which I think was kind of eye-opening that you guys are taking a not real heavy front-end development approach and just kind of using what Rails gives you uh, to the best of their ability. Do you want to talk about that and that process? Sure. I think that um, sort of go through these phases where as an industry, we get infatuated by, by certain things, which I actually think is good. Like that's how you, you push the envelope and you grow and you learn and so forth that, uh, you become infatuated by say client side MVC JavaScript frameworks. And then you try to apply that or over apply it, um, at every instance that you get, because that's how you learn where the boundaries are. Um, to me, it all falls down to the same principle that we discussed in the beginning. Is the code better or is the code worse? When I look at the mass amounts of actual client-side JavaScript code that we have written by not novices, like people who know what they're doing, it's still just not better. Not only is the code not better, the programming experience is not better. The development uh, environment of working on everything in the browser through a client-side MVC framework is worse, considerably worse, significantly worse. And uh, sort of when you then look at that and you evaluate, oh, how should I make my application? You're, uh, I don't think most people dispute that, by the way. Certainly not Yehuda. I had a long talk with him about it at RailsCom, and he's very deep into the client-side MVC uh, model with with Ember.js and, and so forth. Um, Sam Stevenson, same thing, very deep into to moving these things forward. And, and both of them certainly recognize that development experience is just not on par yet. Um, there are a few people who try to deny or gloss over that, which I don't think actually is the interesting part. The interesting part is, that, so, okay, this hurts more. This, like, I stop my toes more, it hurts more, all these things. What do I get back in return? That's where it gets interesting to me, right? So client-side MVC purportedly allowed you to create this class of applications that were impossible to arrive at or sort of a sense of responsiveness or, or latency that you could not achieve with classical, more pleasurable tools, right? So to me, that, of course, became the challenge. Like, can we actually... Like, you can approach the challenge from two ends. You can approach the challenge of, like, can we make the client-side MVC model hurt less? Can we make it just as enjoyable as developing Ruby on the server side? Lots of people working on that. Tons of people working on that. I took the opposite approach and said, well, can we take the kind of applications that we can build doing mostly server-side Ruby applications in Rails and make them as good from a user perspective as the client-side uh, MVC apps. And that became the foundation of, of what then became um, Basecamp Next. 
And what I found was using some pretty simple techniques around stuff like caching, you could get the same level of responsiveness. So, or very, very close to it. There's still some, some cases where, where the client-side model sort of can be better on responsiveness terms, especially if you're far away from your server. If you're having a web app in the U.S. that has lots of customers and shitty mobile connections in rural India, yeah, all right, do the client-side MVC thing. That's, of course, sort of an overstatement. There's a continuum in there. But, for example, if you take an application like Basecamp, uh, an information uh, sharing and collaboration application, mostly used by people on fast connections, um, we could get, we could match the user joy of using that application using the traditional tools that were more pleasurable to use. So to me, then it's just a matter of sort of where are we right now? What is better? What can I do for reuses and how can I make my development process pleasurable? Right now, combining those two things, I believe that what we came up with with Basecamp Next, that the caching techniques was a clear win. Again, just comparing it on things that are easy to see, easy to touch, interact with the UI, interact with the application. Does it feel as good as a client-side MVC app? I think it actually feels better because I think it feels more like the web. I'm not, on the user side of things, a big fan of single-page applications, for example. And then on the um, development side, look at the code, compare the code. Does the code feel better? Does the development experience feel better? And I think that's a complete and other yes. Developing in Ruby and developing... Uh, with the server-side uh, tool change and infrastructure that we have is, is clearly better than developing on the client side with, um, with JavaScript. So to me, yeah. there's a complete no-brainer in the end. Right. Yeah, yeah. And I want to plus one like everything you just said, there, like every sentence. And it, I, uh, I've I've been through a little experience in the last couple of months trying to use Backbone and do client-side stuff, and it's it's pretty painful. And, and and you talked about a lot of these things, evaluating them uh, using very subjective language. You talk about it feels better, it's more pleasurable. But and and as someone who has a lot of experience doing this kind of work, you you've uh, sort of taken all of these. Uh, you know, concrete objective measures and aggregated them up into these these things that sound subjective. But I, but I agree, I agree that there's like totally concrete things beneath all those all those evaluations. And uh, I, I think that that it's not appreciated by a lot of people just how you know, what like what the difference is there. And uh, and the like one object one uh, objectively measurable thing is how long it takes to implement new features. And I found that doing stuff with, you know, I got server side and client side and all these things going on at the same time. If I wanted to just add like one more th value to a, a view of, an, of a model, I had to go hit six different files. And it took me, you know, probably two or three times as long to get the feature in. And I completely agree. Yeah, I think that yeah. these things that, that sound objective or subjective are actually not that subjective because, because I find that most reasonable people actually agree. And as we talked about in the discussion, maybe there's a difference between what is a reasonable person. But of the programmers that I interact with on a regular basis, either in Rails Core at 37 signals or, or elsewhere, I find that we, we tend to agree more than we disagree about these so-called subjective things. That the feel of something, once you 
dive into the concrete level is actually very similar. And, and most programmers are the same and they enjoy the same thing at that level. Once you're in the same cultural sort of sphere, right? Like somebody writing Lisp is, is not going to enjoy the same things in Ruby as I enjoy and, and somebody writing Python, the same thing. But if you talk to two Ruby programmers, like these subjective things are actually not as subjective as they sound. Like feel sounds very individual and very personal when, when I think it's, it's much broader. It's much more shared. It's much more of a, a cultural feel. Like somebody who's in the culture of Ruby, like the, the, the range of what we feel about things is, is much narrower than, than we think. And then these things boil down to something very concrete. It boils down to, as you said, the speed. Um, of which you can do things like how many mistakes you make um, and thus how far fast you can move and thus how motivated you are doing these things. And I think that all these things are incredibly concrete and incredibly sort of important even to people who don't give a shit about what programmers feel um, because there, there are plenty of those and plenty of business decisions about software are made by people who, who couldn't give two shits about what, what you feel is, is right or wrong. But uh, thankfully these things are generally in complete alliance. Like, it's very rare that you're going to feel like this is wonderful and at the same time you produce buggy code that takes a long time to write. No. <laughs> it's usually if you feel that it's great, it's going to go fast and it's going to be uh, relatively faultless. And if you feel like it's it's because it goes slow and you make a lot of mistakes. All right. Well, I'm going to end the episode here. Um, we need to get into the picks and start wrapping this up. And, and before we do that, I just want to thank you again for coming onto the show, David. Um, sure. My pleasure. All right. Well, let's, yeah. let's go ahead and do the picks. Avdi, what are your picks? My pick is the unmute button. Um, it's our I pick of no, the day. I, I honestly, I, I honestly just want to, uh, use my pick time to, to, uh, say something which I didn't get a chance to say, um, earlier, which is, uh, just, just a, a big thank you, uh, to, to David, not just for coming on the show, but, um, you know, uh, 10 or so years ago when, when I started playing with this, this super fun language called Ruby, um, I had fairly low expectations that I would ever be, um, full-time employed to, uh, to write code in it. And, uh, you know, rails was, was a, played a huge, huge part in actually making that uh, reality. So, um, uh, thank you for that. It's been super fun. <laughs> All so right. Ab- Abdi's pick is DHH, which is no surprise because <laughs> they both have great hair, right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> All right, I Jay. actually used to have, uh, speaking of fifth grade, uh, as long hair as uh, Abdi does in, uh, in, in fifth grade. So, uh, yeah, there's definitely an allegiance there on the, on the long hair <laughs> and uh, source of strength. <laughs> did, awesome. you, did you still wear it in a faux hawk? Uh, no, no, you can't really full hog long hair like that unless you use some serious chemicals. I, I just so. came back from San Francisco. You totally can. Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> I, I totally sure need that, a picture. Though. I right. saw, honest to goodness, I saw a faux hawk comb over. Guy had a bald spot and he had done it up in a faux hawk. It was, it was terrifying. <laughs> Is that your pick, David? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, uh, the, the the faux hawk comb over. <laughs> yeah, find us a picture and we'll we'll put it in the show notes. I I should have taken a picture of it. I really should. So, do you want me to do a pick? Yeah. What are your picks? Uh, Magic Piano. Uh, for iPad. 
Um, it's it's like Guitar Hero only uh, for cats. M- only for cats, yeah. Uh, a lot more tappity tappity. My wife started playing this while I was in San Francisco, and she's like, "Oh, this is a great game!" And the whole time I was, I, I would call it home every night, and she would be looking down instead of looking at the camera the whole time. <laughs> and I realized that she's playing a game <laughs> this entire time, and it's it's like Guitar Hero only, p- Piano Hero, I guess. Um, and uh, I've been enjoying it. It's a lot of fun. I wish I had a more like intellectual pick, uh, but that's no. Just Magic Piano. David Brady, our new piano man. That's right. All right. James, what are your picks? Um, so I've got a couple of technical picks this time. Um, first of all, if you are an object geek uh, like me and Avdi, uh, then you should definitely watch Avdi's new video uh, where he did a lunch and learn at the Hash Rocket uh, office. And he goes through and breaks down like four different ways to bust up large classes into smaller classes. And um, what I really love about it is, is he talks about the pros and cons of both, not not really just saying, you know, this one always wins or anything like that. It's like, well, here's the upside, here's the downside. Um, and then there's there's Obdi's talk, and then he gets into a discussion with the um, Hash Rocket group afterwards, and they, they weigh the pros and cons of the various things. Uh, that he talked about in situations where they've used them positively and negatively or been bitten by them and stuff. And so it's really cool stuff. Uh, you should definitely go watch that video. And the other one that I liked this week was um, the new Peep Code play-by-play. I swear, I think I've recommended almost every single one of these, but man, I love those play-by-plays. Uh, this one's with uh, Kyle Neath, who's a GitHub designer. And uh, so I'm not a designer, you know, and it's not really targeted at me. And it's still a freaking awesome video because um, Kyle goes through and shows how he like uh, will mock up putting a new design feature in there. And you just have to see this to believe it. Like, for example, he'll open up the web inspector and then like change the text on buttons and stuff so that he can screenshot them and have the perfect button that fits the site, you know, but it's, but he changed the text to what he needs for the feature and his Photoshop skills are stellar. Uh, and they apply to other things too. Like I tend to use acorn, but, um, but the way he arranges things and layers, he'll take a snapshot of the site and then, uh, layer several things on that he can turn on and off. So you see what it's like when this, particular feature is in or not in it's just really cool stuff to see so if you want to level up on uh, using uh some kind of graphic tools and and a web browser in unusual ways you you should check out that video those are my picks all right cool so james picked avdi and avdi picked dhh who's gonna pick josh i know josh what are your picks (laughs) I, I'm actually going to pick somebody too. This is this is not a coincidence. This is a coincidence. Uh, my my pick is uh, Alan Turing. Uh, it uh, I just realized recently that uh, in about a month it is the centenary of Alan Turing's birth. And for anybody who's uh, not a real serious geek, uh, you may not know that Alan Turing is uh, a British was a British man who. Uh, he, he was born 100 years ago, and he uh, pretty much invented the modern field of computer science uh, you know, out of his brilliance. And through, uh, through some very uh, extreme cleverness, built uh, pretty much a, you know, like the first 
real computing machine that was used to break uh, the Enigma code being used by the Germans in World War II and probably took a couple years off the war effort and saved many thousands of lives. And uh, he, was, uh, he was also a gay man who, was, who suffered at the hands of British law in that day for it and uh, ended up killing himself over the treatment that he received for that. And uh, so you know, he, he's, he's definitely a fascinating character and, and uh, pretty much everything that I do in my life and many of us do in our lives is uh, a, a result of his brilliance and contributions. So I, I and some friends uh, figured it was probably time to have a holiday in his honor. So if you go to alanturingday.com, you'll see – like the most minimal website you can imagine right now, but over the next month, it's going to turn into something uh, a little more interesting, I hope. <laughs> and uh, we, we got a, a GitHub repo up for people who want to contribute to the site. And who knows what the what will happen with this? But uh, I think it's a you know it's time to give the man his due. So that that's my pick, Alan Turing. I just nice. want to say, Josh, that is not the most minimal site I can imagine. The most minimal site says, hello, you're successfully using Ruby on Rails. <laughs> you can find this page in public slash index HTML. Yeah, or the one that uh, it loads up and it doesn't say anything except for the horizontal rule. And then underneath it says Apache 2.2, CentOS, <laughs> blah, blah, blah. <laughs> yeah, that, I call that the hack me page. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, thanks so much for that. <laughs> yeah. All right. Um, who's next? Is that me? Go for it. So um, my first pick is something that uh, I used for a while, and then I kind of forgot I had an account there, and I've picked it up lately because I'm uh, designing courses and designing uh, online training and. Incidentally, if if you're interested in learning how to uh, build JSON APIs, it's going to be real general, not not super Ruby or Rails focused, but just kind of the principles behind it. I'm going to be putting on a live online training in June uh, for that, and then I'll be selling the video as a digital product. But anyway, um, so I've been organizing the the curriculum for these different things for the Ruby on Rails course that I'm putting together for a, an online training site and for the CoffeeScript course I'm putting on putting together for another one. And, um, so I've been doing a lot of mind mapping and the tool of choice for me is MindMeister. Um, I don't know if you guys have used it. You can actually pay for it and then you get, um, you get more, uh, mind maps and you can also share your mind maps with other people. So for example, I had a mind map that I had done for Ruby on Rails that, uh, kind of gave me an idea of where I could go with this Ruby on Rails course for the training site. And um, so I actually shared it with their um, editor and content guy over there. And then he could kind of get an idea of what I was thinking about and where, what some of the areas were that, that I could go into for Rails. Um, and it's just, it's just a really nice tool for that. Um, one other one, and I know it's been picked on the show before, but uh, I've actually been sinking a little bit of time into Skyrim. Um, it was funny. I played it for like a half hour or so, just long enough to get out of the the first part where you're trying to escape where the dragon's tearing apart the little town at the beginning. And uh, I got done with that. And I was Spoiler like, alert. Hello. Yeah, the very beginning <laughs> of the game. <laughs> but anyway, 
So I got, I just, I just barely escaped and then I got off and I didn't play it for a while because I was like, yeah, well, whatever. You know, a lot of people really like this game, but I guess it's just not my kind of thing. Well, I got back in and played for like two hours or so a few nights ago and it, it went from that to, wow, this is a really cool game. So, uh, yeah, um, go ahead and uh, play Skyrim. I think Laurent actually picked it last week, though. So anyway, those are my picks. Um, David, what are your picks? Um, first, I'd say, actually, I was just writing some code this morning and TextMate 1 is my pick. I, I've been using <laughs> that editor since it first came out, I think, in 2004 or 2005. I think 2004. And it's probably one of the only pieces of software that I've had zero interest in updating. It, it, it's one of those things where, like a pencil, to me, it's just done. Like It doesn't need more things bolting on. And uh, it just surprises me how content I can be with, uh, with a piece of software like an editor, which is why I sort of, uh, at time, watched, bemused on as, as people grew disillusioned with Alan's lack of progress and coming out with a, with a new version. Um, and I was just surprised that I could be so content with a piece of software that apparently so many other people were so discontent about. Anyway, I'm uh, first pick, uh, TextMate 1, and second pick, Apple TV. I think that uh, Apple's um, little black box is just absolutely wonderful. Um, you can bring it with you anywhere, even to a hotel. Most hotels have some sort of DVD player or whatever where you can just plug in your Apple TV instead and, and all of a sudden you get access to, to the best entertainment uh, out there, which is, in my mind, TV shows at the moment. Um, Game of Thrones, Mad Men, all that good stuff. Um, I think it's amazing how accessible that uh, the Apple TV has uh, made that stuff on a on a proper screen, not just watching it on your uh, on your computer. And I thought I had one more. Yeah, yeah. I forgot about that, David. I, I just want to want to say, you know, I love the Apple TV too, but they're not just for entertainment. I, I believe every conference room should have an Apple TV hooked up to the big mon- you know, the big uh, TV in there so that people can just like bring in their iPads and hook up to it over airplay and do presentations and share notes and all that, all that. Oh, there. Totally. They're, they're, they're great for that. And I think they're going to be even better in the next version of, um, OS 10 because it's going to have that, uh, airplay duplicate my screen or whatever that the iPad already has. Um, mm. So then it's really going to be awesome. Um, that is cool. All right. That's, that's it. All right. Well, to wrap this up, there are a few announcements we need to make. First off, we are doing our book club. Uh, we are reading uh, Working with Unix Processes by Jesse Stormer. And uh, you can go to workingwithunixprocesses.com and uh, buy the book. If you use the code book club, you get $5 off. And uh, that, that goes to support uh, Jesse and, and all the great work that he did on that book. Really, really cool book. I, I just finished it last night. So um, do we have any other announcements? I don't think so. Okay. I'm going to put a link up to the JSON um, training that I'm going to be doing and any other training that I'm going to have going on. And uh, yeah, so let's yeah, just... D- do we want to pl- plug uh, Parlay? Oh, yes. Yes. Um, so the Parlay link is still in the right-hand uh, sidebar on rubyrogues.com. Um, it will move because I am almost ready to launch 
um, the new website that's going to be hosting this and my other podcasts. But in the meantime, if you go to rubyrogues.com and just uh, over in the right sidebar, you can uh, sign up for Ruby Rogues Parlay. Um, it's it's really inexpensive. It's like 10 bucks a year is what we decided. You can um, go in and do one of the other levels, but you don't get anything extra for that. It's just if you want to support the show more than the $10 a year. But that just goes to help us um, continue to provide this content. And we add you to a Google group where we've been having discussions about some of the content for the show. So um, some really amazing stuff has gone on in there, I think. So anyway. yeah, it, it, yeah, yeah, and it's like if if you want to get in on uh, like pre-discussing the Unix processes book and get set up for us to you know ask questions of Jesse, that's a great way to do it. Yep, absolutely. So uh, go sign up, and we'll get you in the list. And uh, other than that, um, I'm not going to be around next week, so you guys will have to go on without me. It will be hard. <laughs>